In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. gentlemen welcome back to 2023 the year of the rabbit we have for the first time this year we got dr david solomon on it's going to be a great show for those of you and i don't know how many of you there are that may not know who dr david solomon is but i would be so thankful dr solomon if you'd be so kind as just to maybe refresh people's memories about what you got going on who you are and what you've been up to Sure. So I have been a professor of medieval and Renaissance literature, religion, and culture for about 30 years. I'm currently the director of undergraduate research and creative activity at Christopher Newport University in Newport News, Virginia, a native New Yorker, born and raised, um, and uh, written a bunch of books. My most recent book is a book on the seven deadly sins, um, which I'm uh, really a uh, quite proud of that work. So I hope people will take a look. Yeah, it's a great book. And uh, for those of you who are not familiar with uh, Dr. David Solomon's books, they are very rewarding. There's a tons of footnotes and everything is well researched. And I think that those who have seen previous podcasts have an understanding for his experience. And if you haven't, then you are in for a treat in this particular episode. He also writes a blog that is very fun and informative to read, of which I wanted to start off this episode with a little segment from your blog, and I'm just going to go ahead and read it if that's okay. Sure. Just a little, a little piece here. The first, It starts off in the middle of the blog, and it's corresponding to the perversion of art. And it says, Tolstoy, what is art? Question mark. Supplanting of the ideal of what is right by the ideal of what is beautiful, i.e. of what is pleasant. That is the fourth consequence, and a terrible one, of the perversion of art in our society. It is fearful to think of what would befall humanity were such art to spread among the masses of the people, and it already begins to spread. 
blew up my mind there a little bit. Like, can you just dive, just maybe kind of pan out a little bit and then bring us into to what does that mean? And what are you thinking of when sure. you wrote that? Yeah, so let, let, let's back up. So we're talking about okay. Leo Tolstoy, author most people know of War and Peace. Um, I, I did not write what you just read. I wish I had. He did. Oh, um, <laughs> sorry. It, that was I have fun. my notes messed up. Um, in a in a in a, a book called um, What Is Art, um, and uh, he's talking about a book which had been published already. A book in uh, published in eighteen ninety six called Might Is Right. It was a book on on survival of the fittest. Basically, it was kind of reacting to Darwin. And um, what Tolstoy is talking about is he's addressing that question, what is art? And um, just l l let me read the, the, the yeah. quote again. So he's describing the book, Might is Right, this guy's book, as supplanting of the ideal of what is right by the ideal of what is beautiful. That is of what is pleasant. That is the fourth consequence and a terrible one of the perversion of art in our society. So he's talking about, you know, looking at, instead uh th this this conflict has been going on since what since plato right about you know what is beauty what is art um is is it just something that is pleasant and it makes me happy um does it have some kind of intrinsic value um does it is there a difference between beauty and and something that's beautiful and something that is entertaining um, you know, we, we think today in terms of a lot of pop culture entertainment, right? I mean, the, 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 the Marvel movies, they're very entertaining, yeah. right? I'm not sure anybody would describe them as beautiful in the sense that Plato would use that, that, that term. Um, whereas if you're watching a film like, um, oh, I don't know, I'm trying to think about one off the top of my head. And, and the only one that came to mind immediately was, was Life is Beautiful, the Holocaust film. Right. Which I mean, it, it, it's yes, it's entertaining, but there has an intrinsic kind of beauty to it and to the story. And I think what Tolstoy is talking about, and he continues in that quote, he says, it's fearful to think of what would befall humanity were such art to spread among the masses of the people. And it already begins to spread. And so we're talking about the ways in which we view art and what we view as art in our world. Um, and, you know, I, I, it, it's timely because I just uh, took a trip before the, uh, for the holidays with my family. And we went up to, to New York City and up to Boston and also to Philadelphia. It was basically to, to, to look at museums um, and went from one museum to another. And, um, you know, we were everywhere from the Metropolitan Museum of Art to the um the the muter museum of of medical kind of oddities in philadelphia um and it, it it really begs that question about um the connection between entertainment and art i think um and that's something that 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 people talk about a lot especially when it comes to things like film music um, tv right even literature right even 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 publishing um, we've always kind of separated, you know, pop lit, the kind of stuff that we stereotypically used to say you could buy at an airport bookstore from, you know, literature, whatever that means. Um, you know, that kind of all got 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 turned upside down many years ago when when Toni Morrison became so popular and eventually won the Nobel Prize. Well, I mean, they were selling her books in the 
airport bookstore, you know. Does that mean that she's not literature, that it's just pop pop writing, pop fiction? Um, there are some bookstores that you go into that still separate out literature from fiction. How do they make that distinction? What does that mean? It's a great question, and it, 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 it's one of those questions that brings up more questions about this idea of how we interpret what, what is art and you know, what effect does it have? Does popular culture, you know, is, is that what is pushing art in a direction or is it art pushing on popular culture? There seems to be an interesting relationship there. Like what, what do you think some of the dynamics there are? Well, it, it's a relationship that I think has really shifted with, um, with technology and social yeah. media and the internet. Um, you know, my students always marvel at the fact that I tell them that, you know, Robert Frost was on the cover of Life magazine. In, in the in the very early 1960s i mean these guys were these literature i mean t.s Eliot was on the cover of time magazine these literary figures were also pop figures in some ways before we even referred to them that way um we don't necessarily see that today uh you we we, we separate i think um and 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 i'm not saying this to sound elitist but philosophers talk about high art and low art right and and high art being you know you, you you're looking at a at a Degas and low art being you know some would say things like Banksy uh, <laughs> yeah when it comes to art right I mean it, I, I I don't know that I, I don't know I don't necessarily agree with that um but I think that it's a valid discussion that quite honestly, we've been having as human beings for, for centuries. Um, you know, so when Tolstoy, you know, sort of boldly names his little book, What is Art? Um, I, I don't think he comes up with a with a good response. I think he comes up with, with, he doesn't come up with the response. He comes up with a response for his time and place. And I think that's all, all we can do. Um, because the, really what, what art is, 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 is in transience constantly it has to be it has to be i mean when the impressionists first came out people thought that was garbage mm. um i mean the the initial assessment of that work was was it, that that's worthless it's not art <laughs> and now it's it's hanging in museums around the world um you know and that's certainly some of that speaks to what we value we talked about worth right. the last time we talked right? yeah i mean you know unfortunately has to do with that but I think it's more than that. It's um, it speaks to this question of what do we get out of it? Mm. Uh, and I think I've told you this story before, George. So forgive me, but um, when I was teaching in 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 South Dakota, it was my first full time teaching job after my PhD. I was teaching a cor a seminar on aesthetics. So aesthetics, the the philosophical study of beauty, basically. And my parents came out to visit. My father had never seen me teach. And um, I should preface this by saying and repeating, I mean, I, I grew up in New York City. My father loved the Impressionists. Uh, my father was high school educated, uh, but we had a, a, a membership to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Every Sunday we would go down there. But basically, I mean, it was just the Impressionists that he was interested in. He was very interested in them, he read about them. And he just wanted to look at the Impressionists. So, uh, and 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 Van Gogh and Gauguin were two of his mm. his favorites. 
so when he came out to visit me and he was going to sit in on my class, my seminar on aesthetics, I intentionally scheduled that day a critique session, where which we had scheduled throughout the semester, where I would put up a piece on the screen and students would critique it from the perspective of the philosophers and the and the, the theorists that we had been studying. And so that day I I, I chose to put up a, a Van Gogh piece. I forget which one it was. Because my father was going to be in class and I thought he would really appreciate that. So I put up this Van Gogh painting and the class critiqued it for about 45, 50 minutes. And after class, um, I said to my father, so, you know, what did you think? And he said, well, I don't really understand. And I said, well, what don't you understand? He says, why can't you just say that's a pretty picture? Um, and I said, you can. But when we're talking about aesthetics, it's it's a pretty picture because ba 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 you can't leave that off. But he was he's happy enough, was happy enough just to be able to say it's a pretty picture. I like it, and not have to defend why, right? And I think that one of the differences that we that we sort of look at in our culture between what I'll call high art and low art is, I mean, high art has more depth to it, is more oomph. Whereas low art, you can say it's a pretty picture. You can go to a Marvel movie and say, I liked it. It was enjoyable. It had a lot of action. Um, you're not going to do that if you go see a Bergman film, right? I mean, you're going to talk about it <laughs> on a different, in a different context. And I think that I, I think there's a reason for that. Um, there's a reason for that. I think what Tolstoy was afraid of and warning is that that the, the what he calls the masses of the people, right, eventually what we now call pop culture, um, would overtake that art world. And as a result, the whole idea of what is high art would kind of go out the window because it would all be what speaks to the to the the lowest common denominator, if you will. I mean, again, you know, not to, not to belabor it, but the, that Marvel movies are incredibly popular. They make a lot of money. A lot of people go see them. Um, is that art? Eh, I don't know. Um, you know, it, it, it's a type of art. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't think you can compare it with, you know, say the films of, of, of Fellini or Bergman or, you know, the, the films of, of some of these filmmakers who are working just on a different kind of level. Yeah, it, I, think it, I think it speaks volumes of the world we live in when we're surrounded by the type of things we call art. And it would be the things like the Marvel movies. And it's unfortunate to me that in today's world, some of the greatest artists are people that are in the uh, advertisement industry. Yeah. They're, they're using their entire world view to paint pictures to get people to consume rather than to contemplate. And I think that the difference between contemplation and consumption Mm. is is a is something that art could be beautiful for but it's it's been con the world of contemplation has been consumed by materialism in a weird yeah. sort of way like some of i look at some of these ads you know and if you think of like um in hawaii we're really blessed because we don't have huge billboards we don't have advertisements everywhere but we do have on the buildings like a lot of artists will paint these beautiful pictures on the side of buildings and Girls, it's so inspiring yeah. and it's amazing and it makes me think to myself the effect it has on me like yeah. i'm not having this constant reaching out or grabbing me or asking me yeah. to buy this or these 
constant bombardments thrown at me, whether I'm driving or walking. But I do have these beautiful images of a sunset or some dolphins or a beautiful woman that's staring at you. And, you know, there's a symbolism around them. And you're like, what does that mean? And, you know, you look but at some of these billboards. Too. I mean, there can be yeah. something that's really beautiful about some advertising, though. I mean, you know, you look at some of some, yes. some older advertising, which I'm a fan of looking at old print ads and things like that. Yeah. I mean, the, the the artistry in them is just incredible. I mean, the, the, the you know, and a lot of these, the, the greatest artists of the 20th century started out working in advertising, doing, doing you know, doing print ads and, and drawing things like that. And the design world is the same way. Um, you know, if we look at the way things that are, are designed, um, trying to see, yes, it is over on my count, on my shelf. I'm going to excuse myself for yeah, one please. second. Yeah, please. I would love to see it. So... Years ago, I, I found this somewhere. Someone was throwing it out. Yeah, it was when I was teaching in South Dakota because that's that's the label that's on it. Um, and I grabbed it. And it is an old, um, what's the brand here? Acer. I've never even heard of them. Acer stapler. And I just <laughs> thought, this beautiful. has such interesting lines yeah. to it. It's an interesting design, right? I mean, it has, it has function. But the form of it is also kind of beautiful. Yeah, I agree. And you know, if you if you take that versus you know the stapler that's sitting on my desk, it's not very pretty. It's functional, um, but it isn't something that you know. I don't think years from now I'm going to keep and put on my shelf. Yeah. Right. Um, so it, the 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 shift that we've seen in in that in that um, sort of melding together a form and function is interesting right things have become so yes. much more functional and the form of them in many ways not that important not as important you know I, I as i say i was just in new york city and a lot of people are decrying a lot of the new buildings that are going up because they're they're just ugly um you know the form of them is just not very attractive um they're very functional they will do what they need to do um, but as buildings, when you compare them to, say, you know, the Art Deco buildings of the 20s and 30s, many of which are still standing in the city, uh, you can't even compare them. Um, you know, it was interesting. We were walking down 42nd Street towards the New York Public Library. And between uh, 5th and 6th Avenue, in the sidewalk, they have um, put these plaques that have quotes from writers on them. So as you're walking along to the library... You see this now. I don't know what year those were put into the into the sidewalks. Um, I don't think it was that long ago, but you know, a very interesting interesting idea that adds a kind of form. I mean, you know, this is a functional thing. You're walking on the sidewalk. Um, you know, who cares what it looks like? And um, the, the the fact of the matter is, there were days when people did care what it looked like. I mean, like you're you're talking about the murals on the sides of buildings. Yeah, we saw yeah. some of those in Philadelphia too. Um, I was really struck by it on, on the sides of some buildings, some of these beautiful murals that had been painted. Um, and these were new, not, you know, not old. Um, and, and I think, you know, there's a, an interesting thing. You've got a, the function of the building, but it doesn't mean that there can't be something to it. Right. And I think in many ways we've, we've gravitated away from that and think about just, well, is it functional? Is it functional? That's what's important. Uh, you know, I mean, as I look around here on, on my desk, you know, my desk things, are they're all functional. 
Um, there's, there's nothing, I mean, there's nothing very attractive about any of it. It just, it serves a function. Uh, and in our disposable society, when it finished its function, it will be thrown away. Um, you know, and I, I think that, that it, it speaks to the, the, um, the, the resurgence recently in, in people interested in, in everything vintage. Mm -hmm. right? I put that word in quotation marks because boy, it's taken a battering. Um, if you go on eBay and, and type in vintage, you'll see what people are considering vintage. It's kind of funny. Um, but if you, if you, you know, look at some of these things that the, they're just, they're beautiful. I, I, I bought something this morning from a gentleman. Um, I teach a, a museum studies course start next week um, and it's curating. So my students will curate an exhibition. Hopefully later in the semester when we're done, we can have some of them on the show. I would love it. Um, and one of the things, so this semester, they're going to do two different sort of parts of the show. One will be focused on, on things that are related to ritual. And the other thing will be focused on things that are related to play. Um, and so I bought this morning a little children's desk from a gentleman that um, it's hard to describe, but it, it, it has a chalkboard on it that you open. And then inside were these pegs with a mallet that you pound in, the pegs into so you can learn how to do that. And I, he, he, I, I bought it from him and he said, I don't know how old it is. He says, I would say 68 or 69 years old. He said, I'm 73. I guess I never used it. It was his. Um, and it still had everything intact. But, you know, it, it just, it, it, it has a, a, an intrinsic beauty to the design of the thing that I don't think you're going to find if you go to find something similar in Walmart today in the toy section. There was a craftsmanship, and we talked about this once before, yeah. right? artisanship and craftsmanship, which just seems to be um, in in many ways waning in the in the shadows of mass production and and making everything as cheap as you can. Uh, you know, I mean, this, this, I mean, I, 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 I've never looked. I'm sure if I go on eBay, I'll bet you the staplers up there. Um, and I can only imagine what what someone is uh, selling it for. I have no idea what year it's from because the there's some some tape and stuff on the bottom of it. But um, I think people are more and more interested in these these vintage items. They they lasted and but more than that, they had some some beauty to them. Yeah, I agree. Is it heavy? It looks like it's pretty it's solid. Very, you could kill yeah. somebody. <laughs> you, 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 could, you, you could write a you could write a really good murder mystery where somebody's killed with this stapler. Oh, oh that's hilarious! Working online, yep, and on on eBay, sure enough, there they are, one after another. You know, not worth much. It seems people have them up for fifteen, twenty dollars, um, but they see that there is some something about this that you know, meant you wanted to keep it. Um, I don't know what year it's from. I'm trying to see here. That's Acer Model 502. Oh, that's funny. So it's Acer was the name of the staple company. Now when you put an Acer to Google, you get Acer, the computer company. Yep. Yeah. Isn't that interesting. You know, it is interesting. It blows me away, too. I got, I got sort of mesmerized by the idea of writers quotes on the sidewalk and i it made mm -hmm. me think about how we could be 
surrounded by all kinds of artwork and what that might do to our society. I'm wondering if there's a relationship between these bland buildings and these bland jobs and these bland ideas. Like it seems that even though these things, you know, if, if I went to a home builder that's building commercial buildings and I had mentioned to them, why don't you think we should be incorporating art? They would probably want to do a cost basis or a cost effective yeah. analysis. Yeah. Yeah. But they, people don't tend to factor in the long-term effects of artwork on someone's no. creative abilities later in life. I think they should, right? Well, and we're seeing that though. I mean, you know, I mean, you say, you know, about having it around us. I mean, for a while, um, there was a, I don't think the program is still going on, but there was a program to get poetry into the subways. Mm. Um, a friend of mine um, wrote a book that collected all the poetry that had been put in subways um and out in california i believe it was it was a maybe san francisco um i'm not positive um there was a a, a, a i think it was even starbucks was starting to put quotes on cups um literary quotes and I know a friend of a poet friend of mine marilyn chin she had a, one of her her poems a section of it was on a cup and i remember she posted it on facebook um but I, I, you know, I, I just finished reading Susan Orlean's book, The, the Library. Okay. Um, this is a, Susan Orlean's the author of The Orchid Thief. People may know mm. her from that. Um, and The Library was not her most recent book, but the one before that. And it is about the public library in Los Angeles, uh, which had a fire, terrible fire, in the 1980s. And uh, it was a really intriguing book. But she goes in in the book they're talking about when the library was built and all of the art that was just a part of the library the 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 the, the, the sculpture and the relief work that was done on the ceilings and the paintings and the murals as you say i mean we don't we don't really see that much anymore um i think that that has largely gone away as a result of just this focus on function yeah i agree i you know I, I, I don't have a a formal background in art. I, I like to look at it and I like to read about it. But I know that you do have a lot more insight, you know, with, with the work that you do as a creative director. You are around different types of artistic abilities and stuff. And I wanted to read this quote to you to get your uh, – maybe maybe you could help under, me understand it better or I could at least get your opinion on it. So would it be okay if I read this for a sure. minute? Sure. Hegel, who empathetically held on to the arts being meaningful, therefore limited the sensual in the arts to the two theoretical senses of sight and hearing. They alone have access to meaning, while smell and taste are excluded from the enjoyment of art. The latter are only susceptible to the agreeable, which is not the beauty of art. For smell, taste, and touch have to do with matter as such and its immediately sensible qualities, smell and material vo volatility in air, taste with the material liquefaction of objects, touch with warmth, cold, smoothness, etc. The smooth only conveys an agreeable feeling which cannot be connected with any meaning or profound sense. It exhausts itself in a wow. But this idea that the theoretical senses of sight and hearing and the, they alone have access to meaning. Like that's a pretty deep thought. What do you think yeah. about that? Well, it's Hegel. Um, <laughs> <laughs> as soon as you said Hegel, I said, "Oh no!" Yeah. Um, because it's it, it it 
it's a level of philosophical thought that uh, most of us don't engage yeah. in. Yeah. Which right. is thinking about things like you know the senses <laughs> and what they, what they have access to. Although I mean, you know, the, the the Greeks were doing the same thing in some in some ways. Um, I think there's some truth to that. I, I don't think I don't think it works on all levels because I mean, you know, I can sit down and have a really incredible meal and think, you know, well, that that chef is a real artist, right? Um, you know, because that food just I mean, the, the taste of it. The taste and the smell, which is what I'm engaging in, as well as the, the visual, um, has an artistic sensibility to it. Um, but, you know, that being said, I mean, I, I'm a, a, a huge music fan and listen to music really as a, as a tonic in mm. many cases. And um, always I'm just really kind of just marveling at the beauty of of music and i'm talking about everything from you know mozart to 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 uh to britney spears right i mean and i'm right. listening to everything and just amazing I, I it's it's so funny because i was listening to something this morning and you're gonna laugh but it was a song by the captain and tenille um and you know initially people think captain and tenille is bubblegum music right it was pop music 1970s <laughs> means nothing but the fact of the matter is that um, the captain, Daryl, I forget what his last name is, um, was actually an incredible sound engineer and producer. Um, in fact, a lot of the, 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 the greatest albums of the 1970s and 80s were, were produced, recorded in his studio. Um, so, I mean, he was an incredible producer. But I was listening to this one song and I was listening not to, the, to her singing. I mean, her singing was beautiful, but the production value of it, the music, the way that he that he recorded this and the way that it's layered and it just it had such an incredible beauty and i listened to that song over and over again and i'm like wow i mean you know I, i've heard that song for 50 years and i've always just kind of tossed it aside as like oh yeah that was a top 40 hit you know but you listen to it a little bit more closely and you hear the beauty of it so i think you know the, the hearing and the seeing Certainly, that's got something to do with it. But I mean, I think the other the other senses are engaged as well. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna argue with Hegel because because I couldn't, um, <laughs> and second because I would never want to. But um, you know, I mean, Hegelian would have a whole discussion about this that that would be beyond me, and and I wouldn't understand what they were talking about. I, I can I can barely understand what Hegel's talking about. Yeah, I'm with you. That's why I asked. I was like, I, you know, I don't thoroughly understand. I, I kind of can see what he's saying, but, you know, the, sometimes the sense of smell and the sense of taste are derivatives of the sensual mood or the, you know, the, they seem sensual in a lot of ways to me. You know, if we, if we, if we look at the future for a minute and we talk about technology, like we always do, mm. there's some really interesting art programs right now from uh, artificial intelligence where you can type yeah. in exactly what you want yeah. and it will put it in the style of, um, you know, pick your artist. You could have yeah. the, the David Solomon blog, uh, painted in the style of, of, you know, whoever yeah. it's in, what do you think is. What do you see happening there? Is, is that going to explode art in ways for people? Or is it going to make me make the base shrink a little bit? Or do you it's have any thoughts on it? I've been discussing this with some, some artist friends of mine in the last couple of weeks, especially as this new AI bot has come out, um, which seems to be really sort of rocking everybody's world. And there was a, there was a, a, a an editorial in the times, I think it was on Sunday, um, Sunday or Monday, 
um, by an, an illustrator. And she put at the bottom of it um, a comic strip that she had drawn. And then she put in what the, the AI bot had given her when she put the same, you know, the information in. And it was, and she admitted, I mean, it was kind of close, you know. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I, I've always kind of had uh, myself a personal dislike of, of what's always been referred to as digital art. Um, I didn't really understand what was going on there because for me, art was, was a tactile thing. Um, and I didn't really get how you could do that. And then a friend of mine, an old high school friend of mine who's become a, a, a quite a successful painter um, she lives in Europe at the moment, um, and she's quite uh, quite amazing. And she she still does paint tra traditionally on a canvas, but she also does a lot of painting, quote unquote, on her iPad. And when she told me this and, and showed me what she's able to do, it was kind of amazing because I, you know initially I thought, as so much so many people think when they see abstract art, they're like, well, I could do that. You know, and so I said to her, you know, well, you know, and I, I, I try to draw and paint. I'm, I'm no good, but I dabble in it as a, as a, as a really amateur. I, I, I don't know. I, you need to like amateur to the tenth power. I'm so far <laughs> away from being anything that's any good. But I said to her, you know, well, what program? You know, she told me the program you she was using was just a program that you downloaded. It didn't even cost anything. And so I downloaded the program and I started fooling it. I was like, oh my god. There, there, she, there is something to this. You just, you know, not everybody could do it. And, um, but, and here's the big but, because the traditionalist <laughs> me comes out, right? If I'm, if I'm at the museum looking at a painting, you know, and I, I want to walk up to the painting and I'm looking at the brush strokes. I'm looking at the paint. I'm thinking about the artist having stood in that same spot. And, and, and applying the paint to the canvas and what he or she went through. Or when I'm looking at, for example, Degas' uh, sculpture of the dancer, of the ballet dancer, you know, I'm looking at the, the work that goes into that and the, the, the very subtlety of, of the legs. I'm not sure that the digital can reproduce that. Um, and, and, and let me correct myself. <clears throat> it can reproduce it. I'm not sure it can create it, mm. right? It can clearly reproduce it. Can it create it? That's a different question, right? And, and that's when it comes with the artificial intelligence, the whole the whole issue of the Turing test and the sentience of of AI, right? I mean, can it create and and not just mimic? Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's funny that you bring this up because I was I was just reading this morning this article. That was uh, it was an interview with this woman. She's a, a, a computer scientist who won a prestigious uh, MacArthur Genius Grant, um, and she does work on um, in the AI world. Her name is Ye Jin Choi, um, and and the the interviewer asked her whether or not um, uh, trying to find out where it is here. Um, she's point blank asked her whether or not she thought whether or not artificial intelligence was going to be able to um, to make moral decisions mm. um, in the future. 
And um, her answer to that, so, so the question was, how could you possibly teach AI to make moral decisions when almost every rule or truth has exceptions? And her answer is, AI should learn exactly that. There are cases that are more clean cut, and then there are cases that are more discretionary. Um, you know, and an example that she gave later on was in understanding just the, the, the little nuances of things that computers don't seem to be able to yet do that require um, human interaction in order to understand that. Um, she refers to it as the, the, the dark matter of intelligence. Wow. Um, I thought was really interesting. And she, she, yeah, she uses birds as an example. She says, we don't talk about it, but everyone knows it. We don't know the exact fraction of knowledge that you and I have that we didn't talk about. But my speculation is there's a lot. You and I know birds can fly. And we know penguins generally cannot. So AI researchers thought we can code this up. Birds usually fly, except for penguins. But in fact, exceptions are the challenge for common sense rules. Newborn, newborn baby birds cannot fly. Birds covered in oil cannot fly. Birds who are injured cannot fly. Birds in a cage cannot fly. The point being exceptions are not exceptional. And you and I can think of them even though nobody told us. It's a fascinating capability. And it's not so easy for AI. Man, so that makes me think that maybe you know the you, perversion you over my shelf this morning, my, my shoulder this morning. And... <laughs> I think we're on the same wavelength. Uh, like apparently, I, I, yeah. You know, synchronicity. Yeah, it's it's. I, I think it's probably on a lot of people's minds. How can it not be? It's right in front of us, and it makes me come to this idea. Once you read that, and I, I looked at the title of of our podcast today is the perversion of art in our society. Maybe what's happening, and maybe this is the perversion, is that. We are not so much. We are not so much um, teaching AI about what art can be, as much as AI is telling us what art cannot be, and that seems to be a perversion of art. That seems to be scary to me, like because oh, we can't code that in. Well, how much longer before that's that's not even in our algorithm? And by algorithm, I mean our behavior. Like right. maybe it's the AI that is coding us. You know, in a weird sort yeah. of way, that well, would be a perversion of art, right? If we become yes. slaves to it, okay, yes, if yeah, we no problem. Become slaves to it, then the AI will tell us what art is, right? And that's the danger. Rather right. than us understanding what art is, and then you know, well, can AI do that? Can it not do that? But if we shift the feet, the, the the field here, and say, well, you know, AI is telling us that's not art. It, you know, that's just crazy. I mean, I think we mentioned once before, you know, I, I just find it funny that we are so obsessed with artificial intelligence when we still haven't figured out human intelligence. <laughs> yeah, I know, um, I know. I think we still need a lot of, lot of work on human intelligence before we can do the AI, but there yeah, you go. That gives me hope for it as a tool. Like some of the beauty that I see coming yeah. from this AI art world of art is the ability for people you know, the same way that we saw people come back from the Middle East and, and got these new these new limbs and they were able to walk again. I think that the AI may be almost a prosthetic for people who can't really draw but are very imaginative. And it may open up this new field. It may open up new collaborations for people who are very imaginative but 
can't quite translate that vision into reality. Maybe now they could sure. work with an artist and you could, you could, it could be a bridge that people yeah. walk across and help each other. So maybe there's well, something it, there. It's, it's, it's looking at it from a collaborative perspective yes. and thinking more of what can we do that to make this a hybrid, right? It can hybridize yes. what we mean by art. Um, and I think about people like, like, like Laurie Anderson, the performance artist who, I mean, she's, in, she's amazing and she's done incredible things throughout her career with technology, just incredible things with technology, but she still also paints. Mm -hmm. um, and she's a really fine painter and she in her work oftentimes integrates both of them together right the technology and the traditional arts the way that we think about it and i think that's where where you can get to some really interesting things um you know several years ago she was the the first and she says the only um guest artist uh for for nasa um, they, 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 they brought her on board as a, as a, a get, I forget what they, the term they used for the title it was guest artist, something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, and she argues that, that, that the whole thing was such a disaster. They're never going to have another one because <laughs> they had different expectations of what she was going to do from what she did, but she did some really interesting things when she was working with them. Um, and if you check Lori Anderson's website online, you can see some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, she's had a, a retrospective of her work has been um going on at the uh, smithsonian uh i think it's still up um but probably closing soon it's really quite a fine show in dc yeah it's i'm gonna i'm gonna have to look at that it makes me curious yeah. to see to see those two things working together i'm it's fascinating to me to think also how you know it seems and maybe for good reason but it seems the uh the the wall to get into the world of art is sometimes a high wall to climb. And and maybe this AI kind of brings that wall down or lowers. And right. I, I don't know if you want to lower the barrier to entry because you want to have great artists there, but maybe it allows a, a, a different entrance or something to that effect where there's a, probably a lot of brilliant, brilliant artists out there that have just never had the opportunity to, sure. to be surrounded. Well, I mean, it's it's the whole question of democratization, right? It, mm. it, it, you're saying it will democratize art, right? The same way that that, for example, self-publishing is democratized. Yes, right, right. It's a good point. Um, and yeah, maybe that's true. Uh, I mean, we've always had as part of the culture what we've referred to as sort of folk artists, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, these the sort of local artists that just you know that they, they they make these things or they paint these things, and it 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 exists and it sort of operates on on a particular um level that doesn't again reach the level of say something that's going to go in the met um, right but more and more people are becoming interested in that kind of art you know outsider art and 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 things like that and and more um ethnically derived art right looking at things like that it, it's it's very interesting um it has an intrinsic value in and of itself and again, it's it's we're not going to compare it because it's comparing apples and oranges, right? I'm yeah. not going to put a piece of this outsider <laughs> art up next to you know uh, Da Vinci's Salvatore Mundi. I mean that that would be crazy. They're not the same thing. Um, the same way that I'm not going to have you know a kid playing t-ball go in and and pinch hit for the Yankees. It's just that would be crazy. Um, and so you know, uh, too often I think that we just have this sort of static sort of idea of what the thing is it's like well it doesn't reach that so it's not that 
And so get it out of here because it doesn't it doesn't cut the mustard. Um, uh, probably not a good way to go. I mean, you know, I mean, look at how democratized the airways have got. Right. I mean, yeah. 25 years ago, I mean, you and I could have never done something like this. That's right. But the Internet allowed it to happen. Yeah, uh, it, it, it is. Brought that the democratization. I like that. You know, it's it's curious, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. As you know, when we look at the world of museums, and and you're around it so much, and you 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 get to influence it, and you've you've been around, you've that, traveled around. <laughs> well, like, what are there some trends that you see? Like when you look at the world of art, and you've traveled, and you've seen some great pieces, and now you're getting to see great pieces, and the students that are looking to curate pieces, like. Do you yeah. see some? Do you see some changes in there, or can you almost look in your crystal ball and see? Like I see these new kids coming up that have this factor and this factor, and and like what are some of the things that are the same, and what are some things that you think are different about the new people coming up through the world of art? There's an interesting blend because I mean the students that I see who are engaged in in the studio arts, and even the students who are interested in our history, um, are interested in a very very fine blending of the traditional with the, the avant-garde and the cutting edge. And I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're just as interested in looking at, um, you know, the, 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 the Dutch masters and really understanding what they're all about as they are looking at contemporary artists who are really on the cutting edge today, many of whom, I mean, you know, we wouldn't have heard of yet yeah. unless we traveled in those circles. I think that that's a really great thing. I think that's important. I think it's important in, in just about any field, um, but in the art world, especially, um, and, and in, you know, in that world, I'm including music and literature um, and not just visual art, um, performing art for that matter as well. But thinking about, you know, you can't, you can't know where you're going to, you know where you've been. Right. So, yeah. you know, I, I always think it's interesting when you get students who are majoring in English literature, they're like, I don't want to take a course in Shakespeare. What do I need that for? Like, well, because he's foundational in English literature. You know, you may not like him. Um, I, I don't like Jane Austen. Right. But I still <laughs> do. I understand that she has a, a place in the history of English literature that's important. Um, and I, I, I my fear is that we are dismissing a lot of what we've always thought of as seminal artists, seminal figures. Um, and most often they're being um, pushed to the side in the name of, of diversity and saying, well, you mm. know, they're all dead white guys, right? Who yeah. cares? Um, but they set the, they set the stage um, for today. And, you know, I, I think we can look at them, you know, we can run the danger of looking at them through that that presentist bias, yes, without right? a doubt. which is, you know, oh, well, you know, I, I, if you look at Freud, I mean, you know, he was just a he was a pervert. I mean, you know, come on. What, what what's going on there? And he he took drugs. Um, yeah. From 2022. Valid assessment. Right. 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 But we still have to appreciate and understand him for what he did and what he said because without it it's that house of cards right i mean it, he's got the bottom level you take that out the whole thing's going to collapse uh, my daughter is is majoring in anthropology 
Um, and we've been talking about, you know, the, the problem of Margaret Mead. Uh, I mean, mm. foundational anthropologist, incredibly important, but also very difficult given today's world because of a lot of what she said and did and wrote. Um, it's troubling in the in the in looking at it through the lens of 2022. That doesn't mean we should dismiss it. It means we have to understand it in its context. Yeah, it's it's like the founding fathers: give me liberty or give me death. Except for these slaves over here, you know. Exactly. It's, exactly. It's 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 a but to to deny that would be to deny our progress to deny what happened right. there and look on it and apply the 2023 standards to that is you can't get lost in that like you said it, you can't get lost in in applying today's standard to that like that's a pivotal and there's good and bad about it and that's the beauty of it is like look yes and yes look at that that's don't not look at it like embrace it and and hold it you know i'm sure curious I mean, there, there are things that that you see in 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 art, you know, look, looking at yeah. visual art that you yes. go back and look at that you say, oh, my God, you know, that's that's really pretty racist. <laughs> you know? sure. um, and you're like, yeah, it is. Um, you know, did the artist know it when he was painting it? No. Um, you know, it was a different world in a different context. I'm not excusing it. I'm not saying it's OK. I'm acknowledging it for what it is. And understanding that looking at it with today's eye, it's troubling. But it doesn't mean we get rid of it. Right. Um, you know, it has a place somewhere. And, you know, so, you know, some listeners will say, well, you know, now I've, I've, I've raised a, a problem because, well, what about things like the Confederate monuments? Hmm. Right. Which, you know, I mean, I live in Virginia. It's a real thing here. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, my view of the whole thing is. They shouldn't be in public. Do they have a place somewhere? Probably um, in a museum, in somebody's private collection. Um, they need to be taken off of public display because they're inappropriate for what they are. That doesn't mean that we should um, we should get rid of them. We should destroy them. Um, you know, wouldn't it be nice to have all those Beatle records that were destroyed after John Lennon said that they were bigger than God, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I often wonder, too, like, you know, when you when you get rid of a monument or you get rid of a statue, in some ways you are paving the way for it to happen again. Like it can be, it can be a it can be a reminder of a lot of things. It can be a reminder of this is horrible or it can be a reminder of. Let's keep this here so it never happens again. Let's let's teach yeah. people this. Well, it, has to, it, it gets into the discussion. We have this discussion in the museum studies world. The difference between a memorial and a monument. Ooh, that's right? good. They're two different things, right? A memorial is, let's always remember this. Mm -hmm. right? A monument is, wasn't this a wonderful, great thing? We're going to put up a monument to it. Mm. Two different things. Now, a lot of these Confederate monuments are monuments. Mm. Um, and just recently, within the last couple of weeks, they announced that in Roanoke, Virginia, um, they are actually taking down the statue that they have of Robert E. Lee, and it's being replaced with a statue of Henrietta Lacks. Um, Henrietta mm. Lacks is the woman whose uh, who's genes... Cured was, cancer. Uh, yeah, uh, cancer, cancer cells were used. Yeah. Um, and a really wonderful book made uh, written about yeah. it. And, and Roanoke is where she's from, and her family still lives there. 
Oh, um, wow. So they're taking down the, 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 the Robert E. Lee statue and putting up a statue of Henrietta Lacks. Like, well, there's a big change. Yeah, it is. And it's a, it's interesting to see society change in a way. You know, maybe her family should be getting a residual income from the pharmaceutical companies instead of a monument. Yeah, but... <laughs> well, that's, and there's been a lot of court cases and controversy about that. I, I, in fact, a couple of years ago, I tried to get the author of the book, The Immortal Life of Henrietta mm -hmm. Lacks, to come to campus to speak. And um, her agent said that she will only come if you will also pay for members of the family to come with her to tell the story, mm. which I thought was really interesting. That is, you know, that, that makes, I want to shift gears for a moment. I know we're coming up, sure. coming up on, on close to our time, but you know, I, I had read a little bit about um, Ivy league, Ivy league schools. And in particular, mm. they were, my friend and I were talking about Harvard and their business side of Harvard. And they, there's all these businesses that kind of spin out of there, you know, and it, it seems like an interesting model. And I'm wondering if that's maybe something that could be applied to more schools, even grade schools, or, or even, you know, Christopher Newport, if you guys do anything like this, where, you know, wouldn't it be beautiful if the students could come in and they could be almost nurtured in a way where they come up with a piece of art or even in a public school, kids today, let, like, let's take it, let's take it to a whole other level. Like why couldn't schools today like a fifth grader or a third grader, why couldn't they be creating arts works of art and be pairing with museums or be pairing with something and they could get a residual income out sure. of it. The school could get some and they could get some. Yep. Is that, and, is that a way that yeah, schools and, could and, be changing? And, and some have started to do that. Um, there's a, um, a museum that a former student of mine runs in, um, in Wisconsin. And she has a section of the museum actually set aside for kids to come in and they 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 make art and then they they put it up. Um, it's kind of a rotating exhibit, right? Um, you know, I'm not sure if there's any monetary residual from any of that, but it encourages kids to to engage in in the arts. Um, you know, and I, I, it's probably not a good thing to to make it connected to to finance um, because it would just reinforce the idea of art as commerce. Right, right. right. That's a good point. But, um, you know, a, a lot of, a lot more of that thing, kind of thing is happening. I mean, I have students here who go into the elementary schools in Newport News and work with kids on, on art projects, um, especially as, as, of course, art teachers are being eliminated. Yeah. Um, art and music especially is being hard hit. And so the kids do need that kind of um, that kind of outlet. It's important for them to um, to be able to do that. Um, so you know, I, I think it would be interesting to to uh, to collaborate with museums, and I think more and more of them are doing that yeah. with kids. Um, we were I, I was in some I was in so many museums when we went on our trip. I can't even remember some of them at this point, but I was in one of them, and they did have a section set aside where it was uh it was kids kids art again that they that they posted um and i think that's a really you know important part of of what we do um yeah. in nurturing the, the creativity of of kids um something that we that we have gotten really lax on but something that um sadly in in most people gets gets uh, matured out of them Right. I mean, as you get older, yeah. it's just, yeah. you know, um, finger painting is something you did when you were a child. 
Yeah, it's it's sad to see that this world that is open to them at a very early age, all of a sudden the walls come shutting down on them by the age of fourth grade and fifth grade. And there's either no budget for it or there's no there's no creative director or an art teacher that can actually spend time with the kids and develop yeah. those skills. And But it also it shows the value that we place on it as a culture, right? Again, yeah. you know, it's kind of a form and function thing. Um, you know, looking at a, at, a, at a fourth grader making art, it's like, well, that's not going to get you anywhere. Learn this math, right? <laughs> because this is this is what yeah. you're going to need. Um, and so, you know, we, we we've shifted so much in our country from education as as really formative, a formative process to looking at it as as job training, um, which is just horrific. Um, it really is, and it it, it, it we, we've seen it in higher ed as well, right? I mean, people come to, to college to to get a degree, to get a credential, so they can get a job, and it's not about getting an education. Um, it's it you know it's it's I, I used to have a sign on my door. I don't think it's still there for many years. That it, it said you know don't just get a degree, get an education. Um, it's true, and, you know, I, that's a that's a tough sell though especially in this day and age when the cost of education is just so damn high. Um, yeah. You know, and, 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 and I'll defend myself by saying it's not going into salaries. Um, <laughs> it is not. It yeah. is not. Um, I mean, on, on, on most college campuses and even public school um, systems, the highest um, uh, outlay in the budget is physical plant uh, and keeping up physical plant. That's what the money is being spent on. It's, yeah, it's and it, buildings that are falling apart. Yeah, it, it it seems to me that there's so much we can do as uh, as people, as creative directors, or fathers, or truck drivers, or you know, I, I want to share a quick story. I, I came from this. I used to live in Southern California, and I was born in North San Diego. And there's this little town that where uh, it was called Cardiff, and in Cardiff they had commissioned this world-renowned artist to build. It's a big surf town. And they had commissioned this artist to do a sculpture of a guy surfing, you know, and everyone was so excited. It was going to be so cool. And it was, it was kept kind of under wraps. And this guy was, he was a brilliant artist. I forgot his name. And it, the, the sculpture that he made, like the, the, it was, they called it a, it was like learn to surf. And it was a picture of this guy surfing and the, the, the sculpture was beautiful. It was like, it was the face was immaculate and the hair and the detail. The problem was, the guy looked like a total kook and he was standing on the board all weird. And he, you know, they, they dubbed him the, the Cardiff kook and everyone was so, they, they were so upset. They were like, that's not us, man. It's a beautiful sculpture, but the guy looks like a kook, man. And so one night about a week or a, a three weeks in some local artists went down there and they made this giant paper mache shark and they put it over the Carlsbad kook and the city got so upset, you know, and the, Everyone woke up and they went down and they were laughing, but it turned into this thing where, okay, once a month, a new artist would come down and they wouldn't wreck the statue, but mm. they would accent it. And it mm -hmm. became this whole world of artists that would come down and be like, I'm going to do this. And everyone would outdo That's the other one. Yeah. Yeah. And it, I just thought to myself, like, what a great way to teach rebellion. What a great way yeah. to teach art and what a great way to amplify the message and you had all these artists coming down. I can't believe you would 
de- defaced it. I didn't deface it. I made it better. And right. you know, it just it just became this beautiful group of artists that would go and 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 have this conversation and have this artwork. And it was a beautiful way. And I think I think that's just an example of a way communities can teach kids art and they mm-hmm. can teach you how to get a message across how to say I don't like this without defacing something and right. how to start a conversation and how to use art to amplify other art. And I think that that's something that could be done in all communities around. You, know, you don't have to deface yeah. anything or you don't have to send a message. There's a better way and you could get together and communicate and collaborate. And Well, and to have the discussion of, of, as you say, but it's not enough to say I don't like it. Right. I don't like it because. Right? Yes. Why, why don't you like yes. it? What's wrong? Yeah. Right. And how could how could it be improved? What what does that mean about art? What does it mean about what this piece is supposed you know, to have that discussion? Whereas if you just say I don't like it, it just shuts down the conversation. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, there was kids sitting Indian style eating popcorn, listening to people talk about things, you know, and it was like <laughs> that is how it's done right there. And it was a beautiful sculpture, but just not the way people wanted to sure. be remembered and stuff. So I I, I think that there's for, for everybody listening out there, if you're a fan of art and you're a fan of sculpture, there's so many ways you can improve the community and get your kids to be part of it and get your neighbors to be part of it and the businesses around you to be part of it. And, you know, I, I often think like when you're driving on the freeway and there's all this just concrete everywhere, like wouldn't it be great if, if we could get kids from schools to come and paint their ideas of what's happening in the world. And it'd be like driving down this interstate of beautiful artwork, you know, and I I don't know. I think there's a lot of ways we can make the world better. No, I think it's a good point. So, but before we, as we're landing the plane here, uh, Dr. Someone is, what do you got coming up? Uh, Where can people find you and what are you excited about? Well, my website is uh, David a Solomon. It's S A L O M O N.com. Um, and uh, links to my books and the blog and uh, media appearances and my consulting, everything's up on there. Um, coming up, excited, um, we begin classes on Monday here, so I'm excited about a new semester and uh, this, this class on curating, um, which I think is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, busy semester coming up for me with, with work um, and uh, working on some more writing and trying to get some things done, which isn't always easy, but working <laughs> on it. And uh, just excited about the fact that it's a new year. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know about, about where you are, George, but here I am in southern coastal Virginia today. And I think it's 74 degrees at the moment, which is insane. Oh, it's crazy, though. Um, it's crazy. I'm just looking to see here. It's 68 degrees at the moment. Um, it should be about 50. Um, <laughs> so it, it's uh, very interesting weather that we're having. It is. What um can you give us a hint on what the new blog is gonna be about? Um no, because I, I'm I'm working on <laughs> some ideas. Um actually I was reading a lot about artificial intelligence this morning, which is why that like came it. up. Um and it may deal with with that. Okay. I'll be looking yeah. for it. And it's it's such a pleasure to talk to you. I'm th- I'm I'm really thankful you can take time to uh to Absolutely. come and hang out with me in the audience. It's fun. So I appreciate being on. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much. Go check out the uh, blog. Check out Dr. David Solomon. Definitely get the book Seven Deadly Sins. It's well worth your time and you'll be a better person because you read it. So I, uh, I love it. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great afternoon and we'll be back next week. Thank you for your time. Aloha.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.